Hi, I'm Dan Lukasik with LawyersWithDepression.com. Today's guest on our show is Rabbi Mark Gelman. Rabbi Gelman is the Rabbi Emeritus of Temple Beth Torah in Melville, New York, where he has served since 1981. He earned his PhD in philosophy from Northwestern University in 1981, where he also completed doctoral coursework in the history and literature of religious religions specializing in Buddhism and Judaism. He is the recipient of many honorary degrees. Rabbi Gelman writes a weekly column, The Spiritual State for Newsweek Magazine, and the syndicated column, The God Squad, read by readers around the world. Welcome to our show, Rabbi Gelman. Thank you. Good to be here. Okay. Um, Rabbi, um, during your time that you've been a rabbi, and I understand that has been decades now, uh, have you counseled people with depression? Yes, I have. Although my general orientation, and I hope it's the orientation of most clergy, <laughs> is to refer people um, to professional psychiatrists or psychologists, mm-hmm. social workers who uh, specialize in this. It's uh, it's not something that clergy should enter uh, in general because they aren't trained for it. Mm-hmm. Once you've uh, referred those people and say people are t- treating with a psychologist or a psychiatrist or both, do, do the clergy have some role uh, to comfort the people, to uh, counsel them in spiritual support for this kind of condition? Yeah, I, I think we serve two roles. One is what I would call uh, psychiatric first responders. We're the ones who uh, sometimes first alert people to the fact that they are depressed and that they uh, they need some kind of professional treatment in order to get back to some level of functioning life. Um, the second purpose that I think we serve as clergy if we're doing our jobs well and our, our calling well is um, to provide to the community um, a message of hope. The antidote to depression, of course, is hope. And uh, in a communal sense, uh, rabbis can provide that hope. In fact, it's my view that it is the search for hope that is the primary motivator for people to um, affiliate with religious denominations and to to seek personally their own way to God it is uh, it is the search for hope, ultimately. Many people I speak to around the country, and myself included, I'm a practicing Catholic, uh, and so often, especially in the throes of depression, or maybe even at the beginning, uh, I would often ask God, why me? And I think that so many people, maybe it's uh, true for any kind of suffering that afflicts people, ask that seminal question. And in your faith and in your experiences, how do you respond to that? Well, I don't, I have a rather unconventional view of many things. And I have an unconventional view of that question. Um, First of all, I don't think it's a common question. People say it is, but I don't believe it. I've never heard it. Um, Most people are not really consumed by the question of, why this has happened to them. Uh, 
um, there's two reasons for that. First, they they can think of a lot of reasons why it's happened to them. So they know the reasons why it's happened mm. to them. And and the second is um, the question, why me, presumes a kind of spiritual and ethical arrogance that most people are mature enough uh, not to have. Uh, by that I mean the question, why me, if you sort of unpack it a little, means I am so righteous, I am so good, I have done so much for the world and for my family and my community that that my virtue is is so enormous that it should protect me against all evil. Now, no one really believes that. No one believes in their right mind that in the list of the greatest human beings who have ever lived after Gandhi and Mother Teresa, that they should be number three. Um, <laughs> so I, I honestly don't think people ask the question, why me? Um, my approach has always has been on two levels. One, on a, on a level of personal counseling, to just try and get people to find some resources uh, for hope, and I had some techniques that were very effective in that way. And the second is in a in a large in my in my teaching and my preaching to explain to people that there are there are two reasons why bad things happen to them. Uh, the first is that they caused them to happen. Um, people who you know have lung cancer after a lifetime of smoking, really have no right to say, why me? They did it to themselves. People who who have neglected their physical fitness and have developed different pathologies that come from obesity or inactivity have done it to themselves. Um, and And so much of what happens to us that is evil is is, is self-produced. Um, the second well, reason that, that, that bad things happen is because of what Aristotle called natural evil. That is just the way the world works. The rabbi said a phrase, olam kamin hago noheg, which means the world goes according to its own order. It, it means... If you're walking along a street and a brick falls from a scaffolding and you're underneath, it's bad luck on you. But that's just the way the world works. If you're, uh, you happen to be in a place where a tornado hits or a hurricane hits, it's the way the world works. And this natural order of the world is not evil. It's just the natural working of, of the laws of the world. A, a tsunami is not evil. If, if a wave crashes over an uninhabited island, it's not evil. It's only if people are there. Well, people choose to be there. So the point is that there's things we do to ourselves and there's things that happen just because the world is the way it is. With respect to the way the world is, I want to follow up on that point. Would that include our bodies, our brains, our genetics, 
there's sure. many studies which show now that many, many people, especially with the more severe forms of depression, have a strong genetic vulnerability to depression. Or yes. another example might be people who grow up in uh, neglectful homes uh, where they're neglected or physically abused. Those people have high rates of adult onset depression. So uh, can you follow up on yes. that thought? Sure. I mean, sometimes you, you draw you draw some bad cards. You draw environmental bad cards. You grow up in, a, in an abusive, uh, deprived uh, upbringing, and, and in some cases you draw bad genetic cards. But I would say to both those things that there are ways that people overcome those inheritances. Um, for example, um, there are people who grow up in in very, very difficult circumstances. And for some reason, they are disciplined and hopeful and they're able to move out into better circumstances for the rest of their life. Other people surrender to the difficulties of their environment. How do you distinguish between one and the other? Why does why does someone why is someone able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and and someone else isn't from the same deprived neighborhood? So something else is at work here. Uh and uh as far as the genetic inheritance, um it may be true um, it's, it probably certainly is true studies in schizophrenia seem to indicate it's true, that there's a strong genetic component to depression. Uh, however, there's a problem with focusing on that medical fact. And the problem is it gives people an excuse to wallow in their depression, to surrender mm -hmm. to their depression. to say, hey, look, you know, it's, I, I've known people who are obese who say, look, I, I can't lose weight because I'm genetically fat. Well, you know, that's ridiculous. You may have a genetic predilection to obesity. You may have a genetic predilection to depression, but that doesn't mean you can't fight it. And if you believe that this is your inheritance, it's just another reason to surrender. And depression requires vigilance and it requires very strong emotional dedication to to becoming well again. You know, can you give us some insights into how, you know, the Jewish faith, the Jewish religion views depression? And specifically, do you, do you give examples from the Old Testament that you believe are insightful into how people could maybe see their depression or overcome their depression uh, you, you minister and you preach. Can you can you give us a little insight on that? Yeah. Um, well, the first is a personal understanding. I, I think it comes out of scripture, but not directly. Uh, it's a technique that I developed, um, which I call <clears throat> spiritual balancing. Um, the, the history of this is that. My wife and I, Betty, my wife and I were 
living in Evanston near Northwestern University, and we were remodeling an old house, and the fellow who was helping us um, do some spackling, uh, plaster spackling, was carrying one day, he was carrying uh, two big containers of this spackle up the stairs. And I, I said to him, uh, Miladin, that was his name, uh, Miladin, why don't you just carry one bucket up? It's So why carry two at once? And he said, well, if I carry one, it throws me off and, and it, it hurts my back. If I carry two, it keeps me in balance and I can carry twice as much. And for some reason, it was an epiphany for me. It was a life-changing moment. Just watching this guy carry spackle up, up the stairs. And what I realized at that moment, and then developed it as a counseling technique, and I've spoken to psychiatric associations about it, is this technique of spiritual balancing. By that, so, so it works this way. Someone comes to me, they're depressed, they're in grief, but they're in a bad place. Um, so I say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do five minutes of you telling me in as much excruciating detail as you can why your life is, is miserable. Five minutes. And then for the next five minutes, I want you to tell me why your life is wonderful. What are the wonderful hmm. things in your life? Hmm. But it has to be for the same amount of time. And I do this often with people in grief. They say, give me five minutes of how sad you are and broken you are that your loved one died and how unfair it is and how awful it is and how it's breaking you. And then five minutes about what you loved about the person and what was great about the person. So, it ended up what I what I discovered quickly in using this technique is that in the end people felt much better as the, at the end of the counseling session and the reason they felt better was not that anything had changed but that they had balanced the miserable depressive thinking that they had that had embedded itself in their brain because of their trauma with positive endorphin-producing, hopeful thoughts that were also in their brain, but they weren't accessing them because they weren't thinking about it. They were obsessed with the loss. So I think that's the purpose of, of the Psalms. It's the purpose of um, many different passages in, in the Bible, which is to get you at the moment when you are most depressed to think about the goodness that's still in your life and 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 to overcome that natural tendency to focus on your burdens and then but by turning in a conscious way to a meditation on your blessings and then you will discover when you do this that there is not a single day that you wake up where your blessings do not exceed your burdens. Not one single day. Wow. Uh, thank you so, so thank much. Thank you. Uh, You're uh, welcome. Those are 
tremendous uh, positive insights. And I want to thank you for being with us today, Rabbi Gelman. Um, I'm so appreciative, and I'm sure our audience is as well. Uh, This is Dan Lukasik from Lawyers with Depression. Join us next week for another interesting interview.